Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Welcome, Intimates. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Adele Barkley just recently. She was a stranger to me, so we took some time sussing each other out. She's a queer femme poet focusing on intimacy and power, which is exciting. She published If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You, which is a book of poetry about intimacy and power. And she's working on her second book, Renaissance Normcore. We talk about the ethics of vulnerability, articulating vulnerability, the ways we protect ourselves in the process, which was super relevant to me as a content producer that talks a lot about vulnerability. We talked about speaking plainly and the intimacy that brings in written art, the intimacy of domesticity, authenticity when living with people who know you like partners, and the ways we mask intimacy when living with strangers. We talk a little bit about performance of intimacy, and that was super fascinating to me because, again, I'm a content producer who does intimacy stuff. Stuff sometimes gets in the way of being intimate as a personality, if that's even a thing. I guess it's a thing. Am I a personality? I guess I'm a personality? That feels really weird to say out loud. I don't feel like a personality. But I guess at this point you're probably like, stop saying personality. Anyways. I guess when I think about performing intimacy, I think about trying to describe a shape inside my mind. And it's like, the more effort you put into the performance, the more accurately and connectively you can relate intimacy to someone. So it's sort of like touching a multi-sided shape in my head and describing the texture and talking about how it feels in my hand and how many sides there are and how rough or soft it is and all those things. I guess it comes back to connecting about a memory. I think it's easier to do the first time you touch that shape, but so long as you're able to connect well to that memory, I think you can do it over and over again. Fortunately, I've never had that problem as I never have to perform written content more than once, and typically I don't write very much content for the show. But in any case, it was super interesting to talk to a poet about it, so I'm happy to share this grant-writing-money-winning queer femmes poet ideas with you, so enjoy! Welcome, Intimates, to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm sitting here with Adele Barkley, who is a queer femme writer, editor, mentorship person who does poetry workshops. How are you doing, Adele? I'm wonderful. Awesome. You mentioned to me earlier your first book was titled, If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You. Yes. And then it was part of Found Art. Do you want to tell that story? Yes, I would love to. Um, So a few years ago, I was working at a university in an office that had belonged to a professor who was on sick leave and had kind of sort of disappeared. Um, And this professor studied like feminism and the gothic in Canadian literature. So um, she had a lot of books on on these topics. So the the office felt quite haunted by her presence and also all of her books on (laughs) the gothic and haunting um, and, you know, underread women writers. And so I, I I was working a job I didn't particularly love at the time. Um, inhabiting this space uh, filled with this this forgotten professor's things. And on the bulletin board, there was a piece of art made by a child. Um, And it was a kid behind bars with uh, their arms reaching out. And it said, Mommy, if I were in a cage, I'd reach out for you. Um, And I was delighted and horrified by it (laughs) and just like all the weird stuff it seemed to articulate so, so simply and creepily. 
Um, and I like jokingly was like, if I ever write a book, I'm going to title it that. Which you did. <laughs> and then I did. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I've had people be like, yeah, like, what does it mean? It's so deep. And I'm like, it is, it is. But also like it came from a child. And also like it, it, there was a date on it. Like it said like 1996. And like, I was like, oh gosh, like, you know, like this person is probably close to my age now, like the person who made it. Um, and yeah, I just would love to know like what the prompt was that day. Um, or just like, yeah, what that like mother child relationship was like, like it seemed very, very intense. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Like (laughs) what led to the creation of this art by this child? Yeah. I was like, yeah, very intense, fraught, like intense family dynamics. Yeah. That makes sense to me. (laughs) My creative brain is seeing a memento like movie in which you turn out to be the child. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, and turns out, yeah, all along, I was the ghost (laughs) professor's child. Yes, yes. And the ghost professor was your distant mother figure. (laughs) Yeah, so it was just sitting there on on the bulletin board. I was like, this is wildly creepy. I love it. (laughs) And you titled your first book after it. I I did. And you mentioned the themes in that book were more friendship, like intimacy and friendship and... Help me out. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, emotional geographies, as I like to call right. them. So, yeah, I uh, I wrote it during a period of my life where I was bopping around a lot. So, like, I moved from Victoria to New York, and then I was spending time in Montreal and Toronto, and then bopping back to Vancouver. And so, um, at that time in my life, I felt like I had all of these very, like, deep connections um, that were just everyone, but everyone was just sprawled all over the place like I feel like a lot of the people in my life we were in our like mid to late 20s which I feel like is just a time of movement where people are just trying to catch jobs and school and figure things out and so I felt all of my intimate connections were really really spread out and um Mm. and I, I really really love writing letters to friends um and then I started writing a lot of poems to friends and trying to like conjure that that intimate presence and that language you create um, when you have a relationship with someone. Like that relationship, so much of it is built out of language, how you communicate. Um, and I think that's true when you're in the same city, but being apart makes that really, really patent when you're, you know, thinking of someone and you're like, yes, I saw this thing and it made me think of you, or I'm writing you this letter, or I'm writing you this poem with our own kind of secret codes uh, that we've co-created. So I started writing a lot of what I call love letters to friends um, to sort of, yeah, remind me of their presence and conjure them for me as I was bopping from city to city. And, as, you know, they were all moving around as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then your second book was called Renaissance Normcore. Yes, that is the title of the the manuscript. And uh, the book's going to come out in the fall. So I'm still writing it and editing it. But it's like sort of nearing completion. Um, but yeah, that that's the title. Awesome. I'm excited to hear what, what themes you've come up with. Because you mentioned it was grittier. Is that all the spoiler <laughs> that you're like, going to allow? Yeah, yeah. Like the first book I would say like I wrote with this very like mysterious surreal lyric um so a lot of synesthesia a lot of like melding of the senses and very dreamlike um and the second book is just like a lot more plain spoken a lot more bald like it's still poetry there's still metaphors but the voice has sort of um become a, a lot more like colloquial and clear and I'm kind of interested in like what is at stake when you say the thing plainly um and yeah like what kind of intimacy and vulnerability that that can create um yeah like creating intimacy through vulnerability through being a little more transparent almost yeah yeah and like um just like yeah what is at stake and like I stand behind the the way I was writing before like I think I needed those like very complex and weird metaphors to articulate my complex and weird feelings Mm -hmm. um but now I'm sort of interested in this different vantage point where I'm like yeah what happens if like I plainly name the things um it makes me feel a lot more vulnerable I think both instances there's vulnerability and like and it's it's real vulnerability but it's also performance at the same time and I don't think um one is better than the other but um yeah like (laughs) yeah I think there's a lot of um um 
just like yeah messed up dynamics in our world like a lot of violence that mm-hmm. operates on the day-to-day but also on these institutional ways and like sure um what is yeah what happens if i kind of come out and say it a little more plainly mm-hmm. yeah. and i wanted to tie that in with what you were saying about living in a domestic relationship with your partner and how that's involved a sort of taking off of armor and a sort of a vulnerability mm-hmm. of domesticity yeah, no, like, I, I think it's all related. Um, a friend recently asked me, you know, um, she she's fallen in love with someone and is writing poems, or trying to write poems about it. And she was like, what is it like, like, to write <laughs> poems where your beloved isn't an antagonist? Um, and, or you weren't writing about this, like, very intense kind of, like, tension and rift or this up and down relationship like shoot like is there still poetry there um and I was like yeah right um (laughs) there's something like this relates to it where you know I think um I related to that idea of like writing to someone when there's like this tension or this kind of tumultuousness um and I would write these very beautiful poems where the language was like candying over the the gulf between us or the tension um and I don't quite feel that with my, my partner now. And that doesn't mean there still aren't hard things, but like, I feel like, yeah, we're like on the same team. Um, but so instead of writing to someone who I am feeling this antagonism or this uh, disconnect, um, like it's like we're on the same side so I can put down a lot of that stuff, but then there's more work to be done because there's more to look at, like what happens when you actually put that down. And I'm like, oh, I've had to actually look at a lot of, um, you know, the deep currents of, of trauma, this underground network that I was distracted from. Interesting. Um, and so, like, yeah, putting down this armor and, and having to name the things within myself instead of this more external um, view, um, yeah, has been really, really illuminating and also really, really hard. Um, Sounds but, like it. But, yeah, but, like, what can what can you do when you're like, okay instead of the poem being like, oh, far away lover, or like, oh, this tension between us. And when you're like, oh, hey, you're on my team. Now let's look at this really intense shit. Right. <laughs> like all this, all the, all the dynamics of power that we don't normally address, yeah. as opposed to there's power in the fact that both of us clearly want something. And we both clearly have some kind of intimate relationship with one another we're both super into each other right now and we're writing almost to reassure each other we're still in that state and writing to almost convince and implore the other to continue with us (laughs) down this path but what happens when you both realize yeah yeah our goals are are the same we're both on each other's team what now yeah it's like well it's like turns out there's all these other like fucked up power to, can I swear on your show yeah yeah okay all these You're other good. fucked up things like yeah. within ourselves within our histories within our present moment I don't know within our futures right like and so you're mm-hmm. like okay like I'm not trying to bridge this gap um now like it's like okay let's like do some do some digging do some work I thought really hard about the uh the swearing thing for about three seconds because to me doing a show about intimacy and authenticity mm. and vulnerability is pretty hard to do if everyone's guarded against being their natural selves in all of that complexity, which includes ways that are not socially um, not justified, but permitted almost um, encouraged. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very, it's a very class-based thing too. A lot of, a lot of working class folks have no issue swearing, but as soon as you move into the middle class, all of a sudden swearing becomes this dirty practice that likens you to people that are, that are not, that are not the kind of people you're trying to be. Like it's so interesting how that class divide um, Mm -hmm. creeps into the way that podcasts are monetized, the way that podcasts are sold, the way that they're even showcased on, on various platforms. Like even iTunes is really, really clearly no, no swearing whatsoever um, on any of your descriptions. You can't have Mm -hmm. anything even remotely sexy. So literally like, I can't remember which word it was, but I had a word that was like a sexier word in the description for my podcast, not even in the title, because the title is just Intimate Interactions. And they denied me being on the iTunes store for months. Like, we had a back and forth where I was trying to troubleshoot what it was that they thought was profane about my show. And it turned out to be some innocuous but sexy word that was being used in the description. So it wasn't even in the title or like 
Just yeah. like any suggestion. If it's in an episode description, if it's in the show description, if it's buried in any of the text that shows up on the iTunes store and it's a swear word or it's a sexy word, your show is not going to get promoted. Oh my God. That's, that's fucked up. Right? <laughs> I think so. But fortunately, you can label things as explicit and swear your ass off as much as you okay, want on the show. Awesome. <laughs> it's just that it has to be labeled as explicit and there can't be any swears or sexy talk. So oh my God. there are politics surrounding like how we choose to allow mm-hmm. content to be out there, especially with SESTA and FOSTA and like all of these new laws that are coming into place. Not to go down a complete tangent, which I did, but... But no, no, that's that's really illuminating it's... And, and, and makes so sense. Like, so much sense. Because yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, swearing is very like interwoven into how I express myself, but I worked a lot in academia. And mm-hmm. so I have this like, this kind of kickback after I swear where I'm like, I am like, right, was this the right environment for that? Right. If I were writing, would I be deleting this right now? Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, if like, cause like I, yeah. So, and so, yeah, that relates to a lot of like my like academic self being like, mm-hmm. okay, like <laughs> what, is, but like when you want to explore these, these topics, like, like, yeah, there is that like just the language you have to express it. Like, it's, it's hard to talk candidly about sex if you can't swear. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just, I don't know, just, sorry, yeah. No, you're good. You're totally fine. (laughs) That's okay. So you mentioned earlier you were talking about the ethics of vulnerability. I'm curious to hear more about that as it relates to, Mm. like, taking off armor and going from a place of I'm being vulnerable but, like, cryptic to a place of, like, I'm being more plain-spokenly vulnerable. How do the ethics of vulnerability tie into that? Um, That's a great question. And, like, I'm not sure I have answers, but it's something like I think about and question mm-hmm. um, in myself and, and my writing. Cause I, I get a lot of feedback from people um, who are like, wow, like you are just so vulnerable in your writing, um, which like, I, I, I believe I am, but also I'm like, but I'm also very strategic in my writing as well. Um, and um, like, I want to write things that are vulnerable, but I also want to be sure to take care of myself and mm-hmm. my reader. Um, and so, like, I'm, I just spend a lot of time thinking about, like, yeah, like, what is appropriate to share? Like, I think, like, in terms of poetry, I'm just like, yeah, like, there's a lot, like, I think anything under the sun, like, experiences that have happened to you, like, yes but also like how you present them and for which audiences like sometimes I'm like oh my god is this like you know trauma industrial complex but at the same time like I think it's really important to like unearth a lot of the things like we have had to repress in order to be like good citizens and working capitalist beings you know what I mean where you're just like nope repress everything and do your job whatever it is and, and don't sure. explore those things but i'm like well i'm a poet my job is actually to, to explore try, those to things. explore those things right um and yeah i write a lot to people and i name them in my poems and like how do i depict them and for what reasons you know sure am i doing this um yeah um just like and yeah like how are, are people going to feel after they they read a poem and I don't know I think I like to use specifics and actual relationships and actual experiences not even to explore the experiences but like to touch on like the broader themes and be like no these aren't isolated mm-hmm. like they're connected mm-hmm. <laughs> and my specifics might be different from your specifics but there sure. might be a few threads that connect them even if they are different like I really yeah um so I think yeah um So when you say trauma industrial complex, that to me sounds like a complex of businesses or um, series of infrastructure that depends on their industry or their work or their or their finances from trauma. Yeah, well, it's the idea that like I because I saw this term first on on Twitter where a poet was writing about this. And it's sort of like this idea that you need to go mine like your deepest, darkest things in order to like write a poem and sell your poetry book and I'm like and so I I saw that on Twitter and I was like oh my god is this what I'm doing right Um, are you participating in trauma for sale right and I'm just like 
then that makes me really, really uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I have these relationships to these really like messed up experiences and I spend a lot of time thinking about them and they're coming up because mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm living with uh, my partner and their sister. And so we have this like, yeah, this very intense, intentional living and I've put down a lot, a lot of armor and I'm starting to name things a lot more plain spokenly. And there's also a lot of, I don't know, like power in that. Um, in naming your things. And openly. yeah, yeah. Naming them openly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like not pretending everything is okay all the time. Sure. <laughs> right. And, and thinking back to like, I don't know, things that I read as a kid, um, that did ta- touch on these topics, even if, if they were fiction or poetry, like gave me a lot of comfort. Like I think, mm-hmm. uh, when I read Francesca Leah Bloch's, um, I was a teenage fairy, like there's a mention of childhood sexual abuse. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, this has happened to other people. Um, and that was really like important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, or even, uh, yeah, like Sylvia Plath is known as this like great confessional poet. I do think like, I think that is maybe an inaccurate label, but that's probably a different, different topic. <laughs> um, and I didn't quite like overly connect to her emotionality like I love her language but like I love that she did plumb these very dark places um she reminded me of my mother um and like I you know I don't think it's necessary I think you can write poems on like a wide range of things it doesn't necessarily necessarily have um to be about that but if it comes up for you like it comes up for you and I think if you like do it with like <laughs> you have to keep yourself safe if you can and maybe yeah let your reader be safe as well i think that's important mm-hmm. speaking more to the ethics again yeah yeah so that's some, like so i don't know i don't have like a list of like okay aesthetically this is how you perform aesthetics right, but right. it's like something to think about and i think what i do is like i write a poem and then i share it with someone i'm like hey how does this land like someone i trust and be like is it too much in this direction is it exploiting this like how does it feel for you to read that is it too much to hold um so i kind of like i tested out on on, on trusted humans who um who um at that point have the capacity to engage with it and like usually the feedback i've gotten is just like no like yeah it lands um so like usually i write a poem and i'm like oh god it's too 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 much like and then usually people are like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's enough. It's just, it's... The right amount. <laughs> it's the right amount. <laughs> not over, not under, just whelming. Yeah, words like, yeah, it's just, yeah, whelming. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do, I do like the, the word whelming, even though it, I guess, technically doesn't exist. Isn't a exist. word, yeah. <laughs> so speaking along the lines of things that are whelming, you mentioned that something not be too big to hold. Um, there's that piece that was written about mm. titration, quote unquote. Um, which is essentially about just adding only as much trauma or accountability or whatever topic you're working with that your body and mind can safely hold at once mm-hmm. and just chewing on that until you've processed that before moving on to dealing with the rest of the issue or another bite-sized piece. And I'm curious how that ties into being a poet or if I just answered my own question. I mean, I think, oh, I love that, um, yeah, metaphor of titration. Like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, this and yeah like slowing things down to or or like just adding the right concentration yeah um where it's just like okay like here is a little morsel and yeah and maybe you lead it and like poetry is beautiful too because it works through juxtaposition right Mm -hmm. like your similes and metaphors are where you take you're like this is like that um, or you have like a movement in like a thought in one direction and then it's followed by a thought on a completely different topic and the poetry kind of comes from the friction between those things. So, um, yeah, the idea of like adding just like a little bit of this, like one difficult subject, maybe with like juxtaposed or contrasted it with something that's like 
maybe a little easier or like funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I really like humor uh, in writing and poetry and like juxtaposing it. So you're like, okay, here, here's the grittiness. Here's the hard part. Here's like something a little bit more warm. And then like when you put those two things beside each other, you see the connection as well. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? A little bit. <laughs> it's, like, it's getting into the nuts and bolts of writing poetry, which is, I think, a little more specific than my skill set. But, but the idea that you're like, okay, this like really happy, warm thing coexists with, with all these dark this things. This other dark thing. And like, uh, and it's not that they're like relief from each other. It's just they both exist at the same time. Totally. Yeah. And that's what I like about poetry is that it holds... Um, multitudes multitudes and and paradoxes really really well so the idea that you could i don't know like you know write something about like your cat and then like this really like fucked up memory but then you're like okay look at these really cool snacks i brought out like you know like that's like a poem right like that's how it moves from this to that to that and you're like what like why did you do that but then you're like yeah i get it (laughs) yeah that reminds me of kurt vonnegut slaughterhouse five and how he describes the experience of trauma as being unstuck in time Mm. and seemingly teleporting from moment to moment so that such that his experience is one of mm-hmm. petting his cat and then he's in like a war like situation and then he's making himself a snack or his mother's making him a snack and it's it's bouncing through these these um vignettes of his life in in you know to the backdrop of his beautiful metaphor of being mm. unstuck in time yeah yeah the disruption of linearity yeah. um which i think trauma does <laughs> But then also poetry is like mm-hmm. anti-linear, like, because um, if you want to tell a story with a beginning, middle and end, like you write a short story or a novel, um, like you tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, a poetry can hold a story, but it can also like fuck with time. Like the whole idea of the lyric is that you're like pausing everything, stepping out of side of time to think about it. Yeah. Um, and so I think like lyric, I, I think that's like lyric, uh, poetry and and traumas like disruption of linear time like kind of work well together that's a really interesting idea i hadn't considered that similarity before Mm -hmm. so i guess that kind of answers my questions on articulation of vulnerability (laughs) and whether or not one is cryptic It, it seems like if the metaphors lend themselves to the topic then it's not even being cryptic it's really just expressing yourself in a convoluted way that mimics life in being convoluted yeah because like yeah the thing is like with with my first book everyone's like it's so surreal and mysterious and and um yeah like there's synesthesia and things are just mixed and melded together in this really like weird um absurd way i was just like oh yeah no that's actually just um sometimes how i think and process things (laughs) how i experience life (laughs) And, and um and it also stems from like being a kid and keeping a diary and knowing that if i kept a diary my parents would read it and so I was like, I'm going to develop, like, I'm going to write poetry. I'm going to develop this very, like, absurd, surreal code so I can think about the things that have happened. And just even, like, big things or even just daily things. Just like my processing. Process, I can process things in this code that they can't crack. <laughs> so, like, on the one hand, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, actually, no, that is just sort of, like, how I needed to process things. It came out in this, like very like um yeah a surreal way but they're very like it's actually very concrete and real in in sort of like my my mindscape mm-hmm. um yeah yeah <laughs> cool so you touched on you touched on oh, i guess i talked about the too much to hold thing already tell me a little more about authenticity in your second book and how that relates to domesticity for you. Yeah. So, like, because the thing is, like, I think a clear voice, like, it's still an aesthetic. Like, you still have to conjure it and write it. Um, and you think, like, and I think authenticity, um, like, it still requires work. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's not just this clear screen. Um, like actually articulating how you feel <laughs> and how you experience the world, like es- takes work. Especially if it's nonlinear or doesn't lend itself to how you've had media tell you you should be experiencing the world. Yeah, yeah, and 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 just like it takes work to like 
mind what like the sensations in your body and apply language to that right i'm still working on it <laughs> i mean i mean we we all are and then to find like people um who like can understand your way of communicating right um all of those things and so yeah i think that relates to like relationships and domesticity um in that um like it's still so related to to language um and expressions and communication so like i feel like yeah when i lived with roommates i had like a game face i had this mask um like (laughs) i was like actually very sad and triggered regularly but i didn't feel safe to show that or Mm -hmm. didn't feel like um i wanted to um so i like just you know kind of retreated into my room and dealt with all of all of the awful feelings as they came up um but then yeah living with a partner and and um their sibling in this very intentional way being like oh like I have to be (laughs) a little more accountable and uh, authentic um because it's like they're gonna know what's up because they know me so they're like look at me and they're like okay like you're obviously having a bunch of feelings and I'm just like yeah I am like I'm I'm triggered um I'm really sad and sometimes I know why and sometimes I don't um and have (laughs) um and actually having to admit to myself that I'm like a lot more triggered and sad than I would like to acknowledge yeah and like to be sure Um, and it sucks um but it sounds like it but it's also like my reality and i'm sure many other people's realities but like um it's still like related to language because you still you like you need the words to describe what it is you're going through or what is or, or like what it is you need it's definitely a microcosm for any kind of intimate relationship I, especially all the asks that you wish you had made or that you don't find you have the strength or self-worth to make and then all of the no's you wish you had given like mm-hmm. you really get a chance to practice low stakes consent and it's interesting how when I'm practicing low stakes consent myself in a domestic environment I fail at it continuously it's hard because well because you think of like because you're like well it's just small so it's not worth right the work but it's like yeah but life is made up of the little small things yeah so like yeah like it's a lot easier i think if you're like yeah in the context of like bdsm like planning a scene and you're Mm -hmm. like okay these are all like the yeses the ask firsts the no's like these are all the boundaries and borders and the questions and you Mm -hmm. like the continue but like to then apply that um like rigor to like any chores yeah or like inhabiting space or feeding the cats or mm-hmm. <laughs> or just all the things that come up in the day-to-day or like when is a good time to talk about feelings or like what are we going to do for dinner tonight just like importing that kind of like intense... dissection of power <laughs> yeah and of boundaries and of self-advocacy which are all encouraged in bdsm it's like they're sanctioned and they have a place and you have this this time set aside for them when you're doing negotiation. But then the second you get into the rest of the world, there isn't really necessarily a negotiation <laughs> time before talking about chores. It's like you you have a conversation, quote unquote, about chores, whatever that means, with no script. Yeah, without being like, and when we talk about chores, this is the kind of language I would like right. you to use. And yeah. this is the kind of space I would like us to build when we talk about it, Like, because it's a lot of fucking work. Even calling people out for being, like, passive-aggressive about shit or, you know, holding in their body, like, resentment in a way that, that, you know, I can't assume what someone else is feeling. But, you know, if they're shooting me some pretty strong body language, it can be really uncomfortable for me to make the ask about dishes I want to make because that person seems to be holding a whole bunch of stuff they're not talking to me about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, I get it. Like, I'm just like, yeah, the ki- yeah I, I joke. I'm like, everyone has kitchen trauma. Like, I feel like it all... <laughs> All of our stuff just gets articulated through the kitchen because it's how we feed ourselves. And that's so intense and so fraught and, like, has its own, like, cultural and social and intimate histories. Um, And class as well. Like, you see see class in people's shopping habits in the kitchen. Totally. No, like, just, yeah, like, all, like, all of your stuff is articulated through there. And then you have to share it with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah um a lot of our shame right gets wrapped up in food and totally. yeah, our like our class and like our cultural and just like our also like our tender spots like comfort or like comfort that was given or comfort that wasn't um just and yeah there's something vulnerable about eating food with others it's like if i'm if I'm in an uncomfortable living situation, sometimes I'll make my food in the kitchen and retreat to my room and close my door before consuming it. Whereas in the situation I'm in now, I'll make my food and sometimes I'll like eat my food in the kitchen while my roommates, they're talking to me. Yeah. Those are two very different situations. Yeah. Like, and the, yeah, the, the sort of like comfort and vulnerability involved, like, yeah, sometimes we're just like kind of these like scared, wounded creatures and you're like, I need like, some secure like some boundaries or some security or some pillow around me as I mm-hmm. as I eat like mm-hmm. yeah no oh yeah eating is so like it's so social like it's in very very complex and yeah, yeah. and then you're just yeah it comes down to the kitchen and you're like and this is why like everyone gets like has like big feels about dishes <laughs> like it's interesting I've never thought of it as quote-unquote kitchen trauma I, I love <laughs> the idea though that all of our various experiences with trauma tend to come out in the kitchen because the domestic relationship is like a core relationship almost like a parental relationship Mm -hmm. in that it relates to your sustenance. It relates to your livelihood. Like this is how you live every day almost. Yeah. And like, yeah, what kind of food you can afford Mm -hmm. and um, like how you learn to prepare that food, right. And nourish yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in food. There's some, I feel like, yeah, that's something I feel like I have weirdly like always been aware of. Like it just like, but I think, um, yeah, like living with other people really like hit that home for me and like mm-hmm. preparing food with partners, like just being like, if the kitchen feels good, then I'm like, okay, like, like there's always going to be like rough edges that come up, but like if innately or just like instantly it feels good, I'm like, that's a good sign. Whereas I remember, yeah, like preparing a meal with one of my first partners and I was just like, all of your stuff is coming up right now and it's triggering all of my stuff just through the simple act of how to cut vegetables. Wow. That's intense. Like I was like, yeah, I think I was like 18 and I was just like, Oh, I see what's going on. (laughs) That's a good, that's good awareness for being 18 and like being able to at least see what was happening as opposed to just being like, I really don't like this person. I'm going to move out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like it probably connects to like my survivorship of just being like, very vigilant because I just am very like aware of moods because any shift in moods I'm like Mm -hmm. all right what's gonna happen next right why is my body prompting me with these danger signals like Like, why is it like like hyper aware of um how you're cutting vegetables how you're cutting vegetables and so like I'm like looking back I'm like oh yeah yeah just hyper vigilance that was there but like then I was just like right things come up in the kitchen (laughs) like whether people acknowledge it or not like it's there um yeah that's, yeah. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Awesome. Yeah. I just wanted to check in. Oh, no. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. If you need to take a break, just let me know mm-hmm. at any point. Um, you mentioned survivorship, and I was wondering how appropriate it is for me to ask about that or what you feel comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. just to give listeners context, if you choose. Yeah, that's that's a hard one, because I actually do, like, for a long time felt very, um, like, unable to identify as a survivor, even though mm. I'm, like, fairly aware that, like... Um, I grew up around some pretty intense domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, but I think that's kind of how trauma works. And a lot of how that works is like, there's a lot of denial um, that you go through in order to survive. So um, yeah, I think I am comfortable talking about it right now. I haven't always been. May I share something vulnerable about that? Yes, please. So what came up for me before you said it's a hallmark of survivorship to be denying stuff was when you said that you had some pretty like big stuff that had happened in your past. My immediate reaction was like, Oh, I have some really little stuff that's about domestic violence in my past. Um, just in terms of growing up as a child in a home that had some domestic violence, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's exactly what you said. Like there's such an instant minimization and denial. It's like, Oh, but other people had it worse than me. And like every survivor says that. Yeah, no, I say that like, that is how I preface everything. And I'm like, I'm trying to not, but I'm just like, but I know there are worse. And so like, yeah. And so, and, and then just the way that comes up where like you hear someone else say it and you're like, okay, well like your thing is important, not mine. 
And so, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I hope in me saying like big stuff didn't. Oh, like, not feel in any way. Like not you in were any way. eclipsed any of your stuff. Cause like I know that like. <laughs> I'm doing my best to compare my stuff to my stuff and to just compare myself to myself and think about how was I doing this winter last year as opposed mm. to I'm feeling really depressed, at, you know, at this at this week. I'm instead trying to mm. think of it as like I'm struggling and that's okay. And last year I was struggling harder. So this is an improvement, even though I'm still struggling. Oh, that's. That's a really helpful strategy. Thank oh, you for sharing. You're very welcome. Because <laughs> I, yeah, there's, yeah, getting sort of saturated in the moment, right? Because all you know is what you feel in that moment. But, like, it can be very helpful to, like, have documentation mm-hmm. and reminders because it is so easy to forget. And, yeah, a lot of, yeah, the idea of, like, denial and minimization, I think, is is very, very present and and real um and like regardless of people's experiences where like just like there just always is like deep dark stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) across the board (laughs) yeah and like yeah i hear you (laughs) so you know so like i um yeah like like when yeah i have like friends who are still in relationship with their parents like i'm like yeah like that's still really intense and there's like the yeah the inheritance of trauma and the intricacies there um that like i try and honor even though i'm like i'm not in relationship with my parents and don't have that possibility but i'm still like but i also i'm like oh but you guys like there's still a lot of shit running like back and forth there like it's just it's just different Mm -hmm. yeah i had um i had an experience that was that was not gaslighty but that like hit a lot of my gaslighting Mm. triggers because it was with that parent and it was like surrounding a miscommunication and it just kind of like it kind of like bumped the button it like didn't Mm. push it but it was definitely like I was getting very close to having like a pretty intense response to it yeah so just reminding it just I was reminded of that when you were talking about being in relationship to your parents and how like proximity to that can be desensitizing Mm -hmm. or it can be re-traumatizing it really depends on like how that person conducts themselves now and how you're able to manage yourself and where you are and where they are. And it's like such a case by case, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of delicacy. Definitely. I'm interested if you're so willing to change gears and talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about performance vulnerability and Mm -hmm. what it's like to do vulnerability as performance, because in a sense, even though I try and be as authentic as possible when producing any kind of art or media, there is an element of performance there. Once you know that someone's watching, it inherently changes you. It's like the Heisenberg radio principle. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and like, I think it's really, really interesting because like, I think there's some, we have this idea that like performance is insincere, um, but I don't think it is necessarily. I agree. Um, like, I think it can't be. Um, it, yeah. And, like again because i'm like okay like yeah i read poems that people describe as vulnerable and then like i read poems that people describe as vulnerable like if i'm yeah on book tour like the same poem every night right and so i'm like Hmm. performing that vulnerability and i think it's still authentic and real even if like at some point it almost becomes rote um because at that point, though, like, it's art, like, it's me, but it's not me, and it becomes its own thing, and it carries the vulnerability, and then I, like, kind of gift it to other people, and then mm-hmm. they think about it and hold it, so it's no longer, like, I've already gone through the process of, like, what it means to put it into the world, so um, I think, yeah, when I, like, perform it, it's not that I'm having this thought for the first time, or this, like, putting these ideas together, um, for the first time like I've thought about it pretty hard and it's because I want like other people to think about these themes mm-hmm. um, that relate to vulnerability and that doesn't degrade sure that 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 thought and that artifice doesn't degrade the vulnerability it's just sort of like passing it on like the, the sort of like okay you know you hold it for a while and like what does it do, make, for, you. do yeah. for you and maybe it doesn't do anything or maybe it does um, and I think, yeah, like I had this really, this is maybe semi-related. I had this really weird experience um, when I was on book tour in Toronto um, at my book launch. And um, 
like, I mean, I had a great time. I, I had some really rad writers read, and then I got up and read, um, and I read some, like, I don't know, maybe my more intense poems, because I was feeling pretty, pretty empowered, um, and I had a lot of friends there that I felt like, you know, I was like, all right, like, we've got this. Um, and my uncle, who I'm not very, very close to at all, happened to be there, um, which was like kind of cool like I'm glad he came and supported me like we don't have much of a relationship but like I was mm -hmm. like okay like he was like this is a big thing that I should support um but he came up to me and he was like said this really strange comment where he was just like yeah like I thought you like did this all the time um or something like that like and I was like what, what are you talking about he's like well like you just seem so nervous and emotional <laughs> <laughs> you're like that's the job it's and not but it is I, but and i was like cut in the moment i was mm -hmm. hurt because i thought i had knocked it out of the park like i was like no that was a good performance like what are you talking about and he's and and then i realized like in his world like vulnerability isn't a mm -hmm. good thing mm -hmm. and so he was interpreting like the intense emotionality as weakness right when I was like, I just think it would be weird to read those poems with like a sports a announcer voice, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that that would be hilarious, right? Like I'm just like that just would, and yeah, it would be an interesting exercise. It's but, basically stand up comedy at that point. Yeah, right. It'd be inappropriate, and I was like, also, I was like, and my poems are funny, like they're intense, but there's also like I do play with comedy in it, so I was just like, fuck you, um, and like it hit a nerve for a moment until I realized like his like toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, that's super debilitating, like, to yeah. not be able to be vulnerable and embody that without fearing, like, this says I'm weak, this is, like, nervousness, this is, you know, too much emotionality, whatever that looks like. Yeah, so, like, it was a bit of a mindfuck because he was, like, no one, like, my, my sister was there, but, like, no one else in my family was, and so, like, he was the supportive one, but then was also, like, had delivered this, like, backhanded comment <laughs> that was really about, like, his own, yeah. like, toxic masculinity and discomfort with like vulnerability emotionality. and emotionality which like i know i know that but like <laughs> for a moment i was like what um but yeah just but but that interpretation being like oh okay like that um yeah you interpret that in that way when i'm like i was like actually that was a performance of vulnerability as a means to like connect with people about like emotions and ideas sure um, because like, what, why not? That's what writing is for in, in, in my books. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And I think that, yeah, it can be discomforting for some people. Um, yeah. Especially if they have like those hangups on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, and then for me being like, well, like actually like I was pretty okay in that moment. Like I was mm -hmm. doing my art. Right. Um, I was like, it's already, challenging those assumptions. Yeah. I have already had like all of my anxiety and nervousness and fear and about these things. Like now it's a piece of art so mm -hmm. we can think about the things that underpin it or the things that sparks for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. If that makes any sense. So like it the does. performance, the performance, like it's, it's, um, it's crafted, it's, but it, it can be sincere. Um, yeah, no, I, I think so too. Sarah McLaughlin yeah. talks about this mm -hmm. in when she performs a piece that's not, that she's not connected to at that moment in her life. She describes it as trying to remember how intense the emotions were when she first wrote mm -hmm. the song and to reconnect with the memory of that place. And that it's like telling someone a story, a true story of where you used to be. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, like, yeah, the relation to music is really important in this moment, because I think um, poetry is, is weird because it just, it sounds like regular speech, right? Like, I, I more mean, or less. I, it can. Or I've, it can. I've heard some Indigenous poetry that does not sound at all like I expected it would sound. Like, you read, you read the poetry, mm. and then to hear the spoken performance is like, well, I'll buy the book, but I'm going to be missing out, because, mm -hmm. like, it's just not the same. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. And there, there, there's so many different ways people wield wield poetry. Sure. But I guess, like, the difference between music or visual art, there is something where, like, um, like it's made... Yeah, poetry is made out of words, made out of language, and, like, mm -hmm. we all wield language. And so I think there's something about 
like people thinking like that is the thought you're having immediately and speaking like you would in a conversation and you're I like see. and you're like actually no it's like <laughs> it's this other it's this poet brain so the idea like the idea that like um it presents as immediate but it's so deliberate yeah and and that's just because like we we all are steeped in language and we all are and like we text and we write like we and we, i think we all have like poetic flares right and so sure. but it's also like the idea that like um like a painter doesn't have to use their visual skill skills and paint something in order to order a coffee yeah but uh, like we all have to use language to order a coffee so like i think sometimes the challenge of being a poet is trying to get to the poetic language for ordering a coffee for, or like or to like to, to put no to put away the ordering of a coffee or and like bring out the paintbrush I see ask, yeah saying. asking someone to like move so you can sit down on the bus like you know all, all these things all those like very mundane things so you can get to the paintbrush mm-hmm. um that might also make use of those ordinary things as totally. well um yeah if that if that makes any sense so there is this poetry can really like trick you into thinking it is very very immediate Mm -hmm. um and completely confessional and completely true and i'm like it's the truth but it tells lies (laughs) yeah caitlin press says that fiction is the the what is it the lie by which we tell the truth Mm. something like that and i'm sure she's quoting someone else that said that first (laughs) (laughs) but yeah yeah and and ben lerner who is a poet um and actually he writes a lot of novels but they're very like novels that talk a lot about poetry so i like them um but he talks about poetry flickering between fiction and nonfiction. because mm. you're like okay which one is it and but it has that intimacy or it can conjure that intensity and intimacy that's a good word conjure intimacy right so like you read something and you feel like you know the person and like you you don't like it's just what they have selected to show mm-hmm. to talk about these other things or to talk about that thing like ariana ryan's is a poet I, I admire and she yeah maybe like she uses yeah like the letter writing the epistolary mode but it conjures that intimacy and she you know people have asked her about this and she's like well like i haven't actually told you everything like you read that and now you think you know everything but it's like oh no there's even more (laughs) right like it's selected it's it's Mm -hmm. purposeful and it's interesting how reading some letters can read one way in Mm -hmm. one tone and the second you change tones that you're reading the letter in the content changes in its context yeah yeah the tone can change it and even just like the context right like where you're just um, is this a love letter or is it like a jealous sarcasm? <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, I've, I've spent time reading writers' letters and I love it. And it like, yeah, it gives me the sense of intimacy with them. But there's also so much I'm like, I don't even understand. I think it's interesting as well how much intimacy is becoming a product in some ways. Mm. And I think for like I almost pity people who sell intimacy as a product and for whom it is really intense work. Because for me, being intimate is part of dispelling shame. Mm. So for me, intimacy and vulnerability and authenticity are all ways of almost like self-therapy in a sense. And if other people benefit Mm. from the knowledge and experiences that I'm sharing, that's really positive. But if this were a job, I would be vastly underpaid. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I don't get paid enough to do counseling. But so many of my sessions turn into pseudo-counseling. And just like going those deep deep places right yeah uh, and yeah I, I do like exhausting what you're saying. places yeah but I do like what you're saying about about shame because yeah one of my friends described my first book as shame banishing uh, which I loved mm. and like I hadn't even thought about but I but I was so I was like cool <laughs> like and and I was like all oh, right because yeah when you um do like attend to all of those threads like of uh, vulnerability and authenticity and talking about it um that can be a way of banishing shame um but as you mentioned it's a lot of work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is it's deep personal work and i think unless we're forced to do deep work sometimes we'll just shy away from it i know if i weren't confronted with um, a former partner trying to kill herself if i weren't confronted with you know finding her and having to deal with the aftermath of that and the 10 years of counseling or so that I did that was focused around Mm. a lot of the underlying issues that led me into that relationship and a lot of the issues that that interacted with that situation 
I probably never would have dealt with a lot of those issues or it would have taken me much, much longer. So in some ways having like really intense experiences with my parents or domestic violence or emotional abuse, like a lot of that is counseling fodder in a sense. It's like, it's expensive to hold emotionally, mm. but working through it has given me a lot of mm. insight into other human beings. Right. So it's one of those yeah. whole, like, there but for the grace of chance go I, you know? Yeah, and that, that relationship of, like, um, like, just what those experiences teach you. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, they were worth it, but they did teach Mm-hmm. Or, like, you learned. And, like, I don't think that makes, like, the bad stuff worth it. But it is also, like, an, like just, yeah, with a lot of these things where I'm, like, I just don't feel like I had any, like, when people are, like, oh, like, you're so vulnerable in your poetry or, like, you explore these things. And it's sort of, like, I'm just, like, I don't know if I had necessarily the choice. Like, I kind right. of had to in order to figure out how to survive in the world. I think of them like emotional loans. <laughs> it's like you can defer them and just pay the interest on having to suffer through having these things in your past, or you can go to counseling and do the work. And it's mm-hmm. very expensive to pay off the principal. But once you've dealt with it, it's like you if you do have to pay something on mm-hmm. the remaining balance, it's very small. Yeah. I guess what I struggle, though, with is like kind of the cyclical nature of it, where a lot of the time Definitely. I'm like, I thought I dealt with this. And then it's like, no, it's still here. Um, so like... <laughs> That relates to, like, the same thing that your brain's doing, like, that whole titration, if you've ever mm-hmm. had repressed memories. It's like, the, you, you don't get those cinematic flashbacks where you're back there living it, you know? Like, it's very much that experience of, like, oh, yeah, that happened, and now I'm really sad. I'm going to go to my room and eat a whole bag of rice cakes, like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, or that kind of. I, yeah, I don't know if you've had this experience. I have this experience where, like, when I remember things, it feels like I've remembered it for the first time, but I actually haven't. Ooh, that's intense. So I have, I've had people tell me about that experience, but personally, I have not experienced that. Like there's just a lot, and it's not quite so clear cut, but it's just like, there's just a lot of things that every time they feel like a revelation, but they aren't. (laughs) Where I'm just like, no, I have remembered that before, or like that has come up before, but just every time it is a bit of a revelation and it makes me feel like I have goldfish brain, uh, even though apparently that is a myth and just like the sort of sick cyclical nature of it um, I, I is a really I resonate hard with the feeling of goldfish brain I forget little things all the mm. time and like I know that it's not the case but part of me is just really afraid of like the way traumatic responses mm. in your brain mimic like dementia and there's a lot of fear about unlearning all of the work and lessons I've learned and slowly descending into the hell that was my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that thought, I think, keeps me up sometimes. Right, yeah, the, and the feeling of um, going backwards. Yeah. Uh, regressing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get that. I get um, very <laughs> anxious that, like, talking about my experiences and my trauma and trying to process them are like mimicking like the ways in which like my mother hasn't actually processed trauma (laughs) and sort of like holds it like constantly in the like immediacy of the moment if that makes any sense um yeah, like, it's like the trauma's alive in her body, in her experience. And, con- and like, talking about it, but, like, not in necessarily, like, a helpful way. So, like, I'm just like, oh, God, like, am I just doing that? But it's like, well, it's like, no, like, you have to acknowledge and process it. But then there is this, like, yeah, extra fear of just, like, descending into, um, like, that very, like, non-functional and cyclical space that she, like, kind of permanently inhabits. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like yeah she has this thing where she likes to tell me that she's writing a book called Recuperation which means recovering in French Sure. and like and she's like I'm going to write a book I'm going to write a lot of money and it's about my suffering and my healing but she always tells me that and she's never written that book and right like so I feel like the, I I think like and then and then I'm like well like I'm writing a book about these things and like those are completely different things but like I have a fear that like 
her imaginary book about her suffering is like the real book I'm writing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But they're completely different yeah. like, pathways. But I can see how there might be some fear in the similarity there of like, am I not resolving things? Am I just writing about them and not resolving them? Like, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't think that's the case, but just like that sort of weird parallel. Yeah. Well, I might, if I'm, if I might offer. Um, maybe that idea of titration might lend some consolation that maybe your brain is just deciding like, okay, you're well enough to handle these Mm. memories or you're well enough to handle this stuff here. Have all this wonderful trauma that you've, you know. And and also like, and you're well enough to like think about it in its context and like what it brings up like for you, like specifically, but also maybe culturally. And yeah, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I do like try to see like where I'm just like okay it's this thing but it's also relating to these other things um if that makes any sense mm-hmm. um yeah or, like a lot yeah. of stuff ties together yeah or at least like ideally like I'm like people tend to like the cadence of my writing so at least hopefully at the end of the day they'll like <laughs> at least like it on like a very like minute level of like that word was pretty beside that word <laughs> Right. Or like, it was enjoyable to read through. I got nothing out of it. And you're like, great. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, yeah, I did have that experience recently where like a friend of mine asked to, like, I was staying with her and she asked to look at the manuscript because I'd been working at it. And she read a bunch of them and she was like, yeah, I love this poem and that poem and that poem, which was like great. But like, there was a lot where I was like, I feel really fucked up about a lot of these poems. <laughs> and it's kind of like really weird for you to be like, yeah, that one was great. And I was like, like, that was harrowing. Like, that was harrowing. <laughs> so, like, I'm like, so I'm just like, okay, like, I guess people can handle it. <laughs> I'm, yeah, right. I'm like, I'm glad you enjoyed it objectively, I guess. Objectively. Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm like still shaking about it. Oh. I'm, or just like, I'm like, I'm afraid I'll be sued for libel. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you ever check in with the people that you include in your poems to make sure they're okay with you publishing? Um,. Sometimes, not all the time, because I'm not necessarily in communication with everyone. I think, like, the ethical, accountable answer is, like, yes, you do that for everyone. Um, However, I have not done that in some cases because I just either didn't get or, or, like, haven't heard back from the person in a long time. Do you ever change their name or just use, like, Um, a moniker? Yeah, I think monikers are a good way to go if you're feeling sensitive about that. Um, and I, like, I do actually do my best, like, I don't try to portray people in awful lights, like, a lot of the time, my mention of people is just, like, referring to an event or something where I'm just like, yeah, that time so-and-so and I did this, like, so usually it's, like, in conjunction with me, and it's not usually referring to anything a little too intense, so in mm-hmm. those cases, um, I tend to, like, kind of let it go, or, like, a lot of the time there's, it's, like, I... Yeah, or in some cases, I do send the poems um, to the person ahead of time. Like, I had a series of poems for my friend Sarah in my first book. And, like, yeah, she uh, she's like, I read them to my therapist. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so she she's on board. So I do I tr- do try to obtain consent. I have, I admit, I've been shitty in some cases and haven't. But in those cases, like, I don't think there was anything, like, fucked up in the poem. It was, like, either usually, like, a poem to a friend where I was like I actually really love you and care for you so I think I did send it ahead of time or I just mentioned something like being like at that party it was so and so and so and so if that makes any sense yeah so like a little more like kind of like it like just sort of like almost journalistic Mm -hmm. like I wouldn't I wouldn't publish a poem that's like fuck you so and so (laughs) sure and I have done that where like I've been giving a reading and been like okay I'm gonna read this really intense poem and it is about you and I've like because I asked my publisher I was like what should I do and I and uh, she was like, just like give them a heads up, like let them know. And so I was doing a reading in Montreal and like gave the person a heads up. I was like, hey, I'm gonna read these poems. It's kind of about our dynamic. They're kind of intense. Um, just in case you come, so you yeah, can be just prepared. To, yeah, just in case you come. Like if you don't want to come because of that, that's cool. Like I don't name you. Um, and but like yeah, it might bring up some stuff. And like they were actually just flattered. <laughs> Even though I was like, okay, like, I thought it was really intense. Like, I described you as serial killer messy. Um, but they were just like, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's a great response. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like, how, yeah, I was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, I've gotten through all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> all the things. All the things. I don't know. I feel like that kind of... Um, somehow absorbed all of the the 
the things I had been thinking of. So, awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh my gosh, thank you for inviting me and yeah, having this really rad conversation. Totally. And I'm sure we can think up other wonderful topics to bring to listeners later. Awesome. Great. Thanks for your time. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sikwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.